Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Guess what? DigitalOcean recently added MySQL and Redis to their list of managed databases. Their full managed databases lineup now includes the three most popular databases out there for developers, Postgres, MySQL, and Redis. Eliminate the complexity involved in managing, scaling, and securing your database infrastructure, and instead, get back to focusing on building value for your users. Learn more and get started for free with a $50 credit at do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. back everyone this is the change Logo podcast featuring the hackers the leaders and the innovators of software development i'm adam stakoviak editor-in-chief here at changelog today we have a very special show for you we're talking to quincy larson the founder of free code camp as part of a two-part companion podcast series where we each celebrate our five and ten year anniversaries this year marks five years for free code camp and ten years for us here at changelog so make sure you check out the free code camp podcast next week when quincy ships our episode to their feed, but on today's episode, we catch up with Quincy on all things free co camp. Four years ago, four years ago, we talked to you, and since then, you have literally blown up in many good ways. Now, if he literally blew up, wouldn't he have exploded <laughs> and his guts worn out? Okay, figuratively, literally. <laughs> Jared's always my I word always police. do that to him. He is. Although technically you're right. Literally, Literally can mean the exact opposite. Right. Yeah. Well, it depends on what dictionary, right? In right. this case, blown up meaning that... Let's start over again. Gosh. <laughs> I was digging that flow. Oh, you were? Yeah. I will keep it then. We'll keep it. Jared likes it, we'll keep it. But seriously, four years ago, we had a conversation with you. Much different free code camp today than four years ago. What are you doing that's so great? What are you doing that's so well that has gotten you to where you're at? Not just you, but the okay. rest of everyone, the contributors. We were pretty skeptical, were we not? I mean, we tend to be, at times, skeptical. We're paid to be. Yeah, we're paid yeah. to be skeptical. Well, there's lots of stuff that comes out and certain right. things last. I think we are talking about that earlier yeah. in the other show. By the way, kind of a companion podcast going on right here. So definitely listen to the other one as well. Links will be cross-posted. That's right. Show notes, check them out. I mentioned that lots of stuff hits our radar and some things last and other things don't. And I know one of the things we were talking about then, right. four years ago now, links in the show notes, the original Quincy Larson episode. Apologies, by the way, it's been four years for us to get you back. It should have been much faster. Yeah, we usually have the B-backs back sooner. You're still here. You've blown up. You did not fail to sustain. So, so now you agree with you blew up. <laughs> I do. Okay, good. I do. Well, I think the difference stuff I'm guessing is that then was just one pillar. Right. Now yeah. you got many more pillars. Now we got plans for more pillars. Happened. How's yeah. that work? Yeah. So, 2014, almost exactly five years ago, we launched just the curriculum itself. We had a chat room, and right. uh, so free, people would come to Free Code Camp, and they work through the curriculum, and they would ask questions in a chat room, which was originally HipChat, and then it was Slack, and then it was Gitter. We still use Gitter, but now the main thing is the forum. So the curriculum was the the original pillar of Free Code Camp, and now we have a second pillar, which is the forum, uh, which is growing really rapidly, and we've got a lot of exciting things going on there that I can talk about. And then the third pillar is the publication, uh, freecodecamp.org slash news. Um, so. You find it interesting that, that forums are cool again? 
They're always or cool. coolish. I mean, uh, yeah. to some degree, sure. Like, Aren't I think social networks kind of the quintessential community of the internet to a certain degree. Yes, but then you have social networks and you got groups within those networks. So it's like True. you know what is truly a forum. So you're saying in this case, a literal forum. Yeah, a self-hosted right? place where people can have threaded discussions right. over long periods of time. That's indexed by Google. That right. has its own search tools. That has accounts. Uh, that has moderator tools, all of those things where the organization who's hosting that forum has control. Complete control. Yeah. If you contrast this with like, you know, a subreddit or if you contrast this with a Facebook group, a forum gives a lot more organization, a lot more power to the organization. And it also means that, you know, the data stays on that server yeah. with that organization. It's not being used for advertising. Curious how you host it. What, what do you do? Yeah. We, so we use Discourse, which is a really popular forum tool yeah. created by uh, Jeff Atwood and his, his uh, partner, Sam. I can't remember Sam's last name. Saffron. Sam Saffron, thank you. And they are really solid developers. And they, they, they also know a lot about online communities, with you know Stack Overflow being one of the bigger ones. So uh, a lot of the same defaults that they bring to the table are, are what we use. So, yeah. What about literal hosting, though? Like, do you host it yourself? What do you? What's your what's your architecture? AWS or? Yeah, so it's a, it's a Docker image, and we just we have it on DigitalOcean. Gotcha. So we use a lot. Of, we publish this whole organization, like visualization of FreeCodeCamp's architecture, and Discourse supports our instance. So gotcha. they pay like the eighty bucks a month. I see. Cool. Uh, for yeah. for us to have a hosted uh DigitalOcean. I was asking server. that because Discourse does have like a like a service version, right? Yes. Like their own host. So yeah. you're not hosted by them. You host your own, but they support it. They support it. it. Gotcha. They support it. well in the sense that like we every six months if there's some huge thing I start messaging <laughs> right. them on, on their right. own meta discourse. Yeah. Like hey. Yeah. Yeah exactly. Yeah. And we have SSH access. But yeah. if if there's something catastrophic, we you know, we can ask them to go Click, flip the switches. Right. So the buck doesn't stop at you in terms of the, you host it, but you got help. Well, FreeCodeCamp, the forum is one of the bigger ones. Uh, I, th I think there are probably some bigger, like I know Blizzard and Describe Apple. Describe big. So we're getting about 5 million views a month on the forum. Nice. And That's uh, pretty big. I assume that's a lot of recurring active, I mean, there's lots of conversations. Yeah. Forum hits, some people are just Googling, they find a solution in a forum, but there's a lot of people that are actually like, actively part of the community, posting answers, posting questions on the daily. Yeah, at any given time, there might be 60, 80, 100 people logged in using the forum. Let me go back and clarify the skepticism, because it wasn't that we were skeptical of the concept or the idea of FreeCodeCamp. It was really just like the will it continue to last, because you're a nonprofit. There's lots of startups that are also nonprofits. They're just, they don't want to be nonprofits, but they are. But we talked about the sustainability of like you pouring yourself into this. We didn't know it was pretty new at the time. All you had was curriculum. And it was like, is this going to be around? Right. We were also putting a ton of time into and it seemed like a lot of work. And anytime you see those those things, it's just a recipe for maybe. Yeah, for burnout. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, or or uh, goat farming in the horizon, right? <laughs> right. But you're still here. You're still standing. So I guess that's maybe the question. Is Not like, even standing. He's thriving. Fair enough. Striving. What have you found? What's working? What? How did you get to this point? You know, you have a probably a team. You have lots of. I know you have lots of people Absolutely, that are working on yeah. it. So how, what'd you figure out that way? Yeah. Well, last time I was on, you two were both asking lots of very similar good questions. questions about sustainability <laughs> because as we do. Yeah, and and you since you've had the whole request for commits 
series, which is phenomenal. I recommend everybody check it out. And I listened to that and Nadia Eggball and Michael Rogers. And, uh, you know, that was really helpful for me as well. Just thinking about uh, open source and sustainability. Yeah. Uh, since I visited, we finally got the 501c3 status, which is the U.S. government's uh, tax-exempt status code. It's the same one that, like, Doctors Without Borders and the Red Cross and all these big NGOs have. Right. So now... If you donate to Free Code Camp, you can deduct it from your taxes. And we ourselves don't have to pay taxes, which is a huge savings. Uh, Absolutely. Like, yeah, it, it makes a big difference. So uh, we were able to shift from just selling merchandise, which was the only way we were sustaining Free Code Camp, which, you know, spoiler alert, it was barely covering even the servers, let alone, you know, payroll and other things. And I put a lot of my savings uh, into it. I put about $150,000 into Free Code Camp, which... Keep in mind, I was a teacher and a school director. That's like, I was basically saving half of everything I earned for like 10 years. Yeah. That was the money that I had. And we were going to use that to get a house and, or a down payment on a house in California. Um, but did we, that keep you up at nights? Like, were you, were you, were you confident you were going to find that, that thing that works? Or were there nights where you're like, you know what? I'm just wasting my savings away. Well, so I wasn't, I never thought it was wasted because people were benefiting tremendously, but right. I was worried that, I, it was not going to work out, and I was going to have to go get a job. But really, that's like, that's a very nice first world problem to have. Like, oh my gosh, if this fails, then I I'll just have, have to, to go out job. and get a yeah. nice job as a software engineer, right? But I mean, ten years of your savings gone is is yeah. beyond that. What right? he's saying is that, that that doesn't outweigh the risk of of loss. And yeah. I, I guess to some degree, the belief in what you were doing enough to keep going, which you've done. Yeah, yeah, to keep and, up it nice though. Oh. That, that kind of risk, that kind of, that kind of any fear, anything like where you were like twitching. Oh yeah. It was a long, and, and I had my first child <laughs> about okay. one year in. It gets deeper. Uh, so, you know, that was, and we were living in a, we were living in the Bay Area in a one bedroom apartment. Yeah. Uh, it was like 700 square feet and we had a baby in there. And I was just on my laptop all day long, every day, just crunching, uh, trying to reassure my wife uh, that we would pull through and everything would be okay. Now she had a job at a tech company doing accounting and she, as a result, we had health insurance. So our position was already better than a lot of Americans and we, we both had lots of options. So yeah. I just want to emphasize that like we were coming from a position of great flexibility and privilege yeah. that a lot of people do not enjoy. So I don't want to sound like at all um, because really, I mean, worst case scenario, I, I had like standing offers from different companies that would have probably hired me and uh, all those things. But Free Code Camp was doing great. People were using it. People loved it. And I knew that we could make it work. Where there's use, there's usefulness. Mm. Yeah. So what what financially made it work finally? Like it's working now, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're break even essentially. So what we did was uh, as soon as it became clear that we were going to get our tax exempt status. Not that we actually got it quite yet, but before that we'd always been just shifting. If you want to support free code camp here, donate money instead to women who code or donate money to hack club or donate money to hacker dojo or some of these other nonprofits that are helping in developer education, because we really wanted to make sure that people were able to deduct things and, and the money was going to an to a proper nonprofit. So once we got the nonprofit status, you know, retroactively, all, all the donations to us were tax deductible. And I remember just holding my newborn son 
and holding up the, the certification that I got from the U.S. government. And that was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And from there, we've just worked really hard to get a whole lot of people doing monthly recurring donations to us, which mm. is beneficial not only because a lot of people can afford, you know, five, twenty, even $25. We had a few people giving like $250 a month. Um, a lot of people can afford that. And uh, it, since it's monthly, it gives us the ability to project out yeah. and budget. And for an organization like us, like we just need to be able to budget. We're not trying to make huge fixed cost investments. Yeah. We're just paying for servers. We're paying for people to be working on FreeCodeCamp full time. So let me throw a number at you here. This comes from your five years of Free Code Camp post, which is on Change.org News, also in the show notes for those who missed it. More than 40,000 Free Code Camp graduates are now working in tech at companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Spotify. Surely many other companies as well. That's an astronomical number, 40,000. Those are people who've been certified through the program. Many of them have gotten certifications. That includes everybody who's in our uh, LinkedIn alumni network, which is like 60,000-ish people uh, who are working now in technical roles. Uh, not everybody ultimately got the certification because if you get a job, like you're a graduate, right? right? Well, that's I mean, the graduation. The certification, it would be a ends to a, or a means to an end. Once exactly. you have the end, you're yeah. not going to be like, well, I really need my FCC certification, right? I yeah, got and a, a, lot of, a lot of people get the job and then they'll come not back and gradually try to finish it. What's that? Not that FCC. This FCC. Camp. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, of course. Not the Federal Communications Just in case we was thinking, like, Did FCC? They certify certifi- what? Yeah. When were you FCC well, certified? Well, this is audio, and this is the airwaves, the internet airwaves. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, but still, I mean, 40,000 people, that is, to me, a huge amount. I mean, what does that feel like? Do you feel those numbers, or do they get so big at a certain point that it's kind of like another drop in the bucket? I mean, some some numbers are hard to actually, like, I don't know, like, reify in your mind. Well, I'm you know, extremely blessed. And, and I just feel incredibly grateful that there are so many people out there who bother, you know, emailing me or tweeting at me or, or sharing these stories of their transitions from, you know, working in accounting, being a trucker, uh, working in manufacturing, uh, all these different fields that they've gone from to doing software development. And yeah. so that's interesting. It contextualizes those numbers when you're getting practically every day, I get an email from somebody saying, Hey, I just, was able to do this, you know, thanks again. And then I'm able to follow up and say like, oh yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about how you um, how you made this transition or can you post it on the forum? Because a whole lot of people are in the process of trying to make yeah. this transition. Yeah. And so the number isn't abstract. I mean, it's abstract that it's that large, but I have so many concrete examples of that every day mm-hmm. that drive home to me. And so for me, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a, it's a dream come true. I never yeah. would have imagined that we would have anywhere near the scale of people being able to uh, accomplish new things and you know provide for their families in new ways and actualize themselves and be creative in new ways. So, yeah, it's just been a, a huge honor and a huge blessing. So one of the challenges that we've seen people facing coming out of non-traditional education backgrounds, such as I have a free code camp certification or some sort of other boot camp or I'm self-taught, is that that hiring process is difficult for them uh, for lots of reasons. One of the reasons is that companies and organizations aren't always on board with hiring. I mean, more people are looking for senior developers than junior developers. And uh, people who go in through Free Code Camp sounds like they're having success getting hired 
do you help them on that side of things? Or is there like a community support? I'm wondering like if there's like tips and tricks or how are people having that level of success of like, yeah, I got through the program and I got a job because like you said, the job is what most of us are after. And so I'm just curious if there's like, if the community helps on the job side or if it's just like once you're through the program, you just are competent enough to get yourself a job? Yeah, that's a great question. We've kind of made a like a neutrality setup where we don't we don't specifically guide people to specific companies. Um, we tr- we we thought about we built out of a job board and we were going to have it to where people could apply for jobs mm-hmm. uh, directly f- through Free Code Camp. But we just thought about like you know if somebody has a negative experience or if there are people out there who are you know that I, you read about a lot of these Silicon Valley companies that basically just pretend that they've got all this VC funding and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then the funding never materializes. And these people have moved to this expensive city and, and basically get uh, stiffed on their, on their paycheck. Uh, you know, we didn't want to be associated with any sort of like project like that. So we just decided, you know, we're not going to, we're going to leave the job board stuff and the recruitment stuff to the experts. And we're just going to yeah. focus on training people now, we do have interview preparation section mm. uh, that has hundreds of additional algorithm challenges. Uh, we've got like we've updated a lot of the project Euler problems, uh, Rosetta code problems, and made them interactive with like tests that you can run right in the browser instead of having to, uh, you know, the old interface for project Euler was it's like a 20 year old website. Uh, but it's just like you enter a number and it tells you whether you're right or wrong. It doesn't give you any more feedback than that. And it, it just takes a long time to enter it. Uh, so rather than having to do all that coding locally and then go and type a number into a web form and see if you're right, uh, we, we just modernized it and made it an interactive yeah. uh, experience. But So we've got lots of interview preparation stuff. We've also got, at this point, probably hundreds of I got a job type posts on the forum mm. and we've got lots of articles from people who transitioned successfully from other fields into tech who successfully got jobs at Amazon or Google or other places like that telling how they went through that process. Yeah. Like especially the thing that people underestimate the most is just the sheer numbers game that the modern job, uh, the modern developer job application process constitutes. It is quite often for like, somebody who's finished free co-camp or somebody who's gone to a boot camp to have to apply to hundreds of jobs. And then they'll start to get uh, interviews and, and then they'll start to get offers. But we just try to instill in people the notion that this is hard. Mm-hmm. This is not easy. Anybody who tells you it's easy to go out and get a developer job, uh, they're probably trying to sell you something because mm. it's not easy. That's right. So we have all these resources and we have a supportive community who's there to share in your accomplishments, and you can just read lots of yeah. anecdotes that realize the statistics that we all know, that there are a tremendous number of developer jobs at all different levels. Uh, certainly, there are a lot of middle-tier and, and senior jobs, and the senior ones are the ones where the recruiters most actively go out and aggressively right. try to recruit people, but there are definitely tons of Entry small, medium-level medium businesses that just need somebody, you know, the church or the um, local food bank or the other organizations that want to have a nice website or mm-hmm. just need somebody to help set up like a Facebook group or configure like a Wix website or something like that. From your vantage point, can you see trends there in terms of it getting, uh, by no means is it easy, 
but are we, is it trending up in terms of those entry level opportunities in your opinion, or is it just kind of been like a steady churn? Obviously this would be from your vantage point, not like it's like based on numbers, but. So I could look at the numbers and we do have quite a bit of data that we've made public. We, for the last three years, we didn't do it this year just because we'd already done it so many times and there was already so much data and it's a lot of work. Uh, we, we did what's called the new coder survey and it shows like how many, you know, it asks about 50 questions. We had like 30,000 respondents. So it's a really nice, huge data set. Yeah. Significant from a statistical standpoint. Um, and if you dig into that, you can see like how many months of experience people had before they, you know, started applying for jobs or how long they've been working in for jobs. And you can, you can sort of play with the numbers and figure that out. I don't have like a really well-informed answer on that. A lot of what I hear is just at the street level, people like saying that they got a job or people saying they right. haven't gotten a job yet. Um, and reality is messy and every employer is different. Every country is different too. They, you know, European, uh, and I say European, that's really like a collection a of a whole bunch brush. of city states, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and then, sure. you know, you go to India, you go to China, you go to all these other countries where free cooking is really big and, and the market's completely different. I've been to startups in like Shanghai uh, where I walk in the room and half the people working in the developer bullpen are free code game grads. Wow. Right? So so there are definitely jobs out there uh, for people. It's just a question of what those jobs look like and how many applications you have to make and how many right. people are competing for those same jobs. I will say this, though. Getting a job, I think a lot of people think it's all about your skills, but it's really about three things in my opinion. It's about your skills. It's about your reputation. And it's about your network, whom you know. Mm. Uh, if you know the right people, you can get in even with subpar skills, subpar reputation. Yeah. If you have a great reputation, you may not be the best developer, but right. people know who you are from your blog posts or from your YouTube channel, or from your podcast, or, or just from your open source projects that you've contributed to. Mm. Everyone wants great to, to de-risk a choice, right? And the way you de-risk a choice is by some sort of assurance or certainty. Right. So if you have a decent reputation, you can kind of bet that you're a decent person. Yeah. De-risking is exactly what I think employers are trying to do. They're, sure. they're just trying not to make the catastrophic choice that results in them having to terminate somebody, yeah. <laughs> pay a whole bunch of severance, <clears throat> and then go through the entire job. Hire, all you know, over again. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's costly. It's it funny really that, that, that uh, who you know comes so – it makes sense, but we try to be in a world where it's not about – who you know, because it almost seems unfair. And yet it totally still is the facts of life. Right, right. That's <laughs> what I mean. Like, So if you don't know the right kind of people, you can't build your reputation properly or at least maybe add to an area where you have less of a reputation. You have somebody vouching for you, for lack of better terms. If you have a network, to some degree, associating with you, they're, they're, they're therefore kind of adding to your reputation, that you're yeah. trustworthy, that you're right. somebody worth betting on or taking a risk on. And this is why, like, the local markets are so important. Like, yeah. People focus so much on Silicon Valley and, like, the hyper-competitive, like, trying to get a job mm -hmm. offer from Google or yeah. Facebook or Amazon. But if you go to a lot of communities, like, we're here in Houston, right? And I live in, I live in the Dallas metropolitan area, and Jared lives up in Omaha. Like, these are all completely different tech ecosystems with different right. employers, different hiring cultures, um, different circles of people that meet together for tech talks and, and events and um, different professional groups. I mean, like if you learn your local meta and if you're content to stay in the city you're, you are 
in currently, um, there won't necessarily be like a clear roadmap for you to get to that job. But if you pound the pavement and if you get to meet people, I think that things will work out for you because yeah. you're already doing a lot more work than most of yeah. the job applicants do. Plus, like you said, uh, many companies that aren't traditional software companies need software people. And so as you know, the old saying goes, software's eating the world. Every company's becoming a software company. Well, there's a lot more competition to work at the software company, right? They need developers because they develop software for a living. <laughs> but there's a lot of companies that just need like one or two people and maybe their bar is a little bit lower. The competition's gonna be less. Maybe you have a friend who works there. Like there's just lots of those. What you might consider non-traditional software opportunities where it's like, well, maybe they're not a software company, but they have software needs and I bet you can pitch in there maybe even more so than you could at the place that has a hundred developers already. Yeah. If getting a developer job is hard, does that mean that it's got something broken in the system? Now, so if it's hard to get a job that way, what's it's somewhat of an indicator that there's a broken system. Yeah. I mean, or there's broken processes. Something's broken. What makes it so difficult? It's, it's hard here in the U S again. And I have lots of friends in China and in India and places like that, where I think it's, Comparatively easy, not in every city in those countries, but in a lot of markets, it's just much easier to go out and get a job. Uh, in the U.S., we have like a combination of like benefits and like the legal framework and all these things make hiring and firing very difficult. So because it's it's difficult to bring some, it's costly it's to make a yeah. mistake. Yeah, really. So that makes employers really risk averse, even in a field where there's so much demand. And also, employers, to some extent, are operating under pattern recognition. So they're like, oh, this person has worked at this company, right? That's like the biggest indicator of your likelihood of success. Yeah. Whom have you worked for? And are, do they have similarly stringent uh, hiring requirements? Uh, so if you've worked at Google, there's a very good chance that you're going to be a good employee at you know, XYZ Corp as well. So, um, I, And these are things that I think that there's a, a great – she writes a lot of articles for Free Code Camp's publication as well, uh, Alien Learner. Um, she does interviewing.io, and she's written a ton of articles that are much more data-driven on this. But I, I wouldn't say hiring is broken. <laughs> That's kind of a strong word. But I would say there are very clear ways in which things can Improve. be improved without yeah. having to completely overhaul you know, the way that we handle labor in the United States, for example. Uh, just pair programming or doing more take-home assignments rather than doing whiteboard. Uh, challenges would be one, I think, fairly obvious improvement because that is heavily biased toward recent college graduates mm -hmm. who just spent a whole bunch of time but basically going ad nauseum through uh, algorithms for like tests and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't work as well when you're hiring somebody who's a, who's been out of the job market for a while if they just had a kid or somebody who has just been working for a long time but hasn't interviewed for jobs recently. Your mission isn't to get people hired. It's to educate. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? Or is it kind of part both muscle. sides? So our official, you, said you don't, you don't really help place. So you're not, it's sort of part of it's in, it's implied by your efforts. So our official mission is just to help as many people as possible learn to code. Yeah. That's, I think it's written at the bottom of every single page in our footer. That's our official NGOs mission. Yeah. That said, virtually everybody who uses free code camp dreams of one day Becoming more technical. Now, whether that's actually being a software engineer yeah. uh, or just, you know, being a designer who can code or a marketer who can code or um, somebody who 
wants to build like a cool interface for their drone that they're flying around as a hobby. Yeah. Um, somebody who wants to build an Alexa app just to impress their kids. You know, there are so many different use cases for programming knowledge, but yeah. it's all a net positive. I, I like to say that back in the 1600s, you didn't need to be able to read to go out and work, right? But the people who did sit down and take the time to learn to read were infinitely, not infinitely, but they were dramatically better off as right. a result. Same thing in the 1920s. If you learned how to drive a car, suddenly you had all these new opportunities, opportunities. open to you. And more recently, like the 1990s, people really learned how to use spreadsheets. They learned how to use word processors. Uh, they learned how to use like these slide-based tools like PowerPoint. And that opened up so many opportunities for people. So yeah, you can get by without it. You, you could be, you know, a congressperson, a congressperson in 2019 who doesn't know how to type and just relies on a secretary to do the typing for them, right? But real life, like you are better off just gathering those additional skills. And I think that uh, soon people will awaken to the fact that being able to code is very helpful and it does give you a whole lot of additional options. This episode is brought to you by KubeCon Cloud Native Con, and you are invited to attend this flagship conference from the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. It's happening March 30th through April 2nd next year, 2020 in Amsterdam. This conference gathers the adopters and technologists from leading open source and cloud native communities. Use the code KCEUCHANGELOG to get 10% off your registration. Again, KCEUCHANGELOG. That's KC for KubeCon, EU for Europe, and ChangeLog for ChangeLog. Or check the show notes for our special link to learn more and register, and a link to the Convention Boss letter. Again, check the show notes for our special link to learn more and register. So figuring out the financials is one aspect of sustainability. Another aspect is making it so that Quincy doesn't have to do all the work. And yes. surely you have a team at this point and lots of people contributing. So like to hear the different roles, who's involved in the, and then as a follow-up to that, how you inspired them to get involved in FreeCodeCamp's mission. Absolutely, yeah. So FreeCodeCamp currently, we have a lot of active contributors um, and I'm extremely grateful for all of them and we're getting ready to maybe by the time this episode goes live we'll have our uh top contributors for 2019 we've got some really nice backpacks that we're gonna ship to them nice. uh, to recognize their efforts to say 2019 top contributor it's got the free code camp logo and, and these are the same backpacks that we sold a few months ago we're actually running a second run of those too since we're going to be printing some these top contributor ones but there are seven people who work for Free Code Camp full time, including myself, and they are all generalists in the sense that they all wear a lot of hats. Mm. Um, everybody comes up through Free Code Camp as contributors after a few years of contributing. If they seem to be particularly capable or uh, particularly passionate, then, and we have the resources. Uh, then we will bring them on. And so currently the team is, is, again, me doing just everything. Like I do support and I also do uh, 
I'm overseeing a couple different projects within. Then we have Bo Carnes, who is running the Freeco Camp YouTube channel, which recently became, I think, the biggest programming channel on YouTube. It's got 1.4 million subscribers now. There's a channel called The New Boston that hasn't been updated in like four or five years, and they have more subscribers than we do. But other than them, I think we're the biggest. Uh, so Bo runs that. He creates a lot of the videos. He does a lot of the editing for our contributors. And uh, Bo also is working with a curriculum. So Bo worked as a teacher for, I think, five or six years prior to joining Free Co Camp, a public school teacher up in Michigan. We have Abby, Abigail Rennemeyer. She is based in Portland, and she worked as a archaeologist uh, before. She has like a totally different background. But she had been editing thousands of articles for the Free Co Camp publication, and she kept doing it. And I was like, hey, you want to do this full time? So she's been doing that. She mm-hmm. also runs the podcast. So if you've listened to the Free Co Camp podcast, there's a good chance you've heard her interviewing people. And uh, then we have Ahmed Abdul Sahab. He's in Turkey. Uh, he recently immigrated to Turkey. Um, and he is doing some exciting things over there. Uh, he does a lot of the design. Like when we overhauled Free Co Camp's visual design. Uh, he did a lot of that work and he also does a lot of just like the day, the in and out, uh, code maintenance. Um, then we have Mugesh Mohapatra who is in Bengaluru or Bangalore and he does pretty much everything regarding the core (laughs) code base and like all the servers. And he, uh, he's the person we call if something catastrophic happens. Uh, and then, we have uh, Christopher Koishigawa, who's in South Korea, and he was working as a teacher for the last six years and started contributing a whole lot to our uh, to our interview prep section. And so we brought him on. So he and Bo are working together on the updated curriculum, which I can talk about in a minute. And then we also have uh, Mia Lu, who is based in uh, Hangzhou in China, and she's running the free code camp China team. And we basically have like a completely parallel organization in China and we've got Chinese language forum, Chinese language publication and Chinese language curriculum. And that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people using that. So I think I got everybody. It is hard to always remember everybody (laughs) on the spot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As we experienced recently as well. So, that's amazing. You have a parallel organization in China. Just curious in terms of the Free Code Camp alum or even just the users. I mean, your team is spread abroad. And so is, where's your biggest audience? Like, do you have the foothold in India? Like, is it India? India and the United States are like neck and neck. Sometimes India gets, there are more people in India. Sometimes there are more people in the US. Uh, and then Nigeria's third and China. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Is that based on just visits or how do you, how do yeah. you? Use, yeah, yeah. logged in use, yeah, like time on site, yeah, right. Gotcha. Okay. So you have Chinese translation. Do you have translation into other languages as well, or just the so, two? Yeah, that's a great question. What we're trying to do is just really make sure that we have everything rock solid in Chinese. And Chinese is bigger than most of the other world languages combined. Uh, it's second only to English. If you look at like Wikipedia usage, and this is what we used for our metrics, like to to plan internationalization, we looked at 
how Wikipedia was being used and, and, and we looked at like the world language usage for different uh, translations of Wikipedia. Um, and then we looked at like the total number of speakers of those languages that were using the internet actively. Um, China is just exploding in terms of mm. people adopting technology and they're very enthusiastic about it. Um, and a lot of them are getting great jobs and there's a lot of money going into uh, just a lot of different aspects of like um, artificial intelligence, like machine learning, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the the real machine learning and also the ifs and uh, then statements and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and then also there is a whole lot of um, expertise in China. Uh, India, a lot of the great Indian engineers stay here and a lot of the Chinese engineers go back to China and create companies. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know... I'm trying to think of some uh, some names of famous engineers who've left like Google or have left like teaching at Stanford uh, who've gone back to China. But there are a lot of really promising companies over there. So we wanted to do China first. Um, I personally, maybe I'm a little bit biased because I lived in China for like five years. My wife's Chinese and I'm just very optimistic about the future of China. They've, over the course of the past 30 years, they've taken hundreds of millions of people from subsistence agriculture and they've transformed into a a manufacturing center of the world and now they're transforming into much more services and creative-based economy. And learning to code is going to be a big part of that. For sure. Can you speak to the the need for native language curriculum? Like specifically with what I've heard at least with China is that there's – you know, this desire, obviously, a massive amount of people there, but most of the documentation, a lot of the books tend to be or are more likely to be in English. Can you yeah. speak to the, the need for native language curriculum? Yeah, well, it's always easiest to learn in your native language. It's just one less thing you need to worry about. Uh, a lot of people, more than a billion, have Chinese as their, their main language. More than a billion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you include... If you include like written Chinese, like there are a lot of right. spoken dialect how variations. Many, how many on Earth? Six point five seven billion people. No, you're behind. It's like seven and a half or eight. At it's this almost, point. Yeah, eight? it'll be okay. eight in like ten or fifteen. It's been a while sub into the stats yeah. stats machine here. Okay, but the point is, is that that's quite a lot of people. I mean, more than oh, a billion people. Sure. Yeah, that's a massive amount of people. That's like. I was going to say one half Facebook, but I can't remember Facebook's <laughs> Facebook. Facebook, I think, is two point five billion. Yeah, it's like, uh, that's uh, half yeah. Facebook. Right, there you go. That's crazy. That is not, yeah. Well, it makes sense too. It's interesting too to hear your insights on the choice to use a massive um, global site like Wikipedia as an example to say. That's smart. You know, why did you choose? Where did you choose first? Under what circumstances? Because yeah. in a lot of ways, what you're doing is creating a Wikipedia, for lack of better terms, for software developers, right? Curriculum is very much like that. Wikipedia has been a huge influence on us. And of course, Wikipedia is mostly open source as well. And they're also a nonprofit. So in many ways, if Wikipedia hadn't proved out the concept that you could have a donor-supported commons of learning material, in their case, more encyclopedic, in our case, more procedural, skill-focused learning, you know, FreeCodeCamp probably we wouldn't have attempted it because yeah. we needed that proof of concept. I'm not the kind of person who's going to throw their entire livelihood uh, behind like a totally wild guess. But I sensed, I guess correctly in retrospect, that there would be demand there and that people would be 
people who were graduating from Free Code Camp and going out and getting these great jobs would turn around and donate back to the organization, and mm-hmm. it would be sustainable. Do, do you see somebody utilizing Free Code Camp and maybe a boot camp as well, or some sort of intensive? Is there a yeah. is there a scenario where it's only Free Code Camp? I know you're not trying to yeah. do that because you're very community minded and oriented, but is the is the intention to be Free Code Camp alone, or is it sort of like a companion to other learning opportunities? So I've always viewed Free Code Camp as a core curriculum, if you will. And a lot of coding boot camps do use Free Code Camp as either part of their curriculum or they'll use it as their pre-coursework. And we have a really good relationship with a lot of coding boot camps. And I'm very excited about the future of coding boot camps. Really anything that can drive down the cost of adult education. Because yeah. right. universities are The hardest part about that too is is curriculum development. Yeah. Right, like if you have to start from scratch every time you want to start up another boot camp opportunity in your neck of the woods, whether it's here in the states or elsewhere abroad, if you can shrink that time from, you know, desire to teach to teaching, yeah. it's a it's a leg up on on uh, opportunity. I w- yeah, I'd, I'd agree. It's the hardest part, but it's not the most important part. The most important part is the, the interpersonal relationships that you know a, a teacher or professor yeah. has with their students and the that students have with one another, and. Uh, you know, the counselors that help you prepare for the job search and all the other things that a university or a coding boot camp or um, any sort of adult education program can add, like the value added. The curriculum itself, really, if you think about it, very few people actually design curriculum in the sense that most universities have textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> right? And like everybody, like you go to Econ 101 and everybody has, you know, the same textbook regardless of which university you're studying at uh, for the most part. Yeah, gotcha. So... Yeah, Free Code Camp can be a free interactive textbook that these organizations can use. And, of course, it can be used on its own, just like I could go to a library and crack open a textbook and, and learn economics or I can learn uh, you know, how to program in C just from a textbook or from some sort of static resource. The, the main advantage with Free Code Camp, of course, is it's experiential, it's project-focused, right. and things stick a lot better when you're actually building how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it relevant, current? And maybe the naysayers saying, oh, your curriculum is not current enough or it doesn't is not idiomatic enough. Yeah. How do you how do you push back the haters basically? Well, we just focus on fundamentals. Uh, we're not going to be covering bleeding edge tools for the most part. Like I believe that everybody needs to just get a really strong foundation first. And most of what constitutes foundational knowledge as a developer stuff that was figured out in like the 60s and 70s and in the case of mathematics sometimes hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago right so what we're teaching is just the most ubiquitous tools that are the most generally applicable i think node.js is to a large extent one kind of the web server war if you will uh and uh javascript is useful for pretty much any kind of web development uh we're getting ready to introduce python as well as a core part of the curriculum so currently it's six certifications. Each certification requires you to build five projects and get all their tests passing. So we're adding four additional Python-focused certifications. Uh, So right now, our certification, just for people who aren't aware, uh, front-end specific, we have the responsive web web design. We have uh, JavaScript algorithms and data structures. Then we have uh, front-end libraries, data visualization with like D3JS primarily. And then we have the the full stack focused ones, which are APIs and microservices and information security and quality assurance. So we're going to add four additional Python ones that will be either at the end of that or will be 
we'll kind of break up those, but we're adding, uh, we're adding scientific computing with Python. We're adding data analysis. Uh, we're adding information security with Python and we are adding machine learning using TensorFlow, Keras, and potentially scikit-learn. So we're adding lots of tools, but these are not tools that are like groundbreakingly new. These are things that sure. academics and practitioners in the field have been using for years. What about things like the small things, like I think of the JavaScript syntax and the updates to the language. I mean, the nice thing about web development is mostly additive, like new technologies add on top of HTML and on top of CSS. With trends in JavaScript, I think the, the big change between callbacks to promises to async await, like those are things that do get outdated. Do you just yeah. like churn it out and keep it updated, or do you not fight those battles? What do you do there? So we we just update. Uh, like if if one thing, like for example, CSS variables, like we're probably going to rip out our SAS section at this point because CSS is getting so many of the core features that like those preprocessors. Yeah, that Adam, they're taking SAS out. Yeah, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and then like yeah. like we we still have a bootstrap section, but probably just going to teach flexbox and uh, grid and stuff like that. So, so we do go through an update, and like like you just asked specifically, as new features are added to ES6 or ES2019 or whatever they're calling it this year, right? Um, we'll just go and update the, the individual lessons, and we we kind of update them in situ and add additional lessons if necessary. The entire curriculum is about to become completely project-oriented. This is something we started at the beginning of the year. We're rewriting our lessons to all be building projects. So instead of learn JavaScript and here are 200 JavaScript lessons that are tangentially related, <laughs> go through them, it's learn JavaScript by building a something. role-playing game. Yeah, you know? nice. And so you'll build like a role-playing game. You'll learn basic JavaScript from that. You'll learn typography from building a USDA nutrition label. You know, you'll you'll learn all these different things through projects, and currently the curriculum is like thirty certification projects and a whole bunch of lessons. Soon it'll be thirty certification projects and uh, also a whole bunch of practice projects, like thirty or forty practice projects. So those will all be interactive with tests the entire time, and you'll build the projects one line at a time, one passing test at a time. It's so much easier to learn when you have some sort of like concrete expectation or visual in mind you know like giving somebody a goal and not just abstract thoughts of like oh here's you know as you said 200 different tangential lessons on javascript it's more like here's what we're learning in order to build something like this that you've seen in the real world you may have even used in the real world nutrition labels for example what was that one for that was tables uh learning typography typography yeah yeah, yeah. like visual hierarchy yeah that makes sense yeah, so we've got, I mean, this is all, of course, open source. It's all on GitHub. So if you want to see exactly how our curriculum is coming along, you can check it yeah. out. Um, and we're going to keep plugging away at it. Like I said, Chris, Christopher Koishigawa and Bo Carnes are working on this basically full time, doing instructional design. They're both trained classroom teachers who've also learned uh, web development on their own through FreeCodeCamp over the years and through other resources. So um, should be really really solid. And even if it's not totally solid when it launches, that's the great thing about open source. It'll gradually accrue a whole bunch of improvements and eventually it will be great. Yeah. <laughs> eventually. <laughs> eventually great. It's like eventual consistency. Only exactly. Eventual greatness. So in addition to the refresh of the curriculum, you also launched a brand new refresh to the learning platform. 
you're now buzzword compliant because you're on the Jamstack. Yeah. Do you want to talk about some of the new infra and the code and what you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jamstack, JavaScript, APIs, and markup is what Jamstack starts, uh, stands for. Uh, my friend uh, Matt Billman over at Netlify coined that term in a bar at some point. I don't remember the exact story, but um, he uh, he's been a big proponent of just like the security and the performance boost that you can get from just, you know, doing everything at build time and then just serving like the static files essentially. Right. So now FreeCodeCamp, if you go to freecodecamp.org and you go into the learn app, uh, pretty much everything is prepackaged and, and you get the entire application. Uh, it just loads and, and it'll work offline. It won't work offline perfectly right now, but we're working on getting it to be like a offline first app. Um, so there are a lot of advantages and a lot of those advantages have to do with the fact that we don't have to, sorry, that little thing threw me off. <laughs> <laughs> Text message. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those advantages just have to do with the fact that we don't have to spend as much money on servers. Yeah. We can cache everything. Has that been like a substantial difference for we you? Spend like, I mean, we spend like 5,000 bucks a month on servers. What do you spend now that you're on Jam? I think we're spending like 4,000, <laughs> but we're still doing a lot That's of the optimizations. I mean, it will, a month. gradually it'll reduce. Yeah. 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 Wow. Eventual greatness. Eventual greatness. Curious why, you know, if you have such a massive global audience, why, and this is just the the uh, partnership personality in me comes out as like why you wouldn't reach out to someone in that business to establish some sort of partnership and make that zero or very low. If anybody is listening who's like, in a position to grant a whole lot of credits <laughs> yeah. or uh, do something You'll like... You'll take them. Yeah, we'll take them. We, we use all that we can get from like Amazon, Azure, um, Google Cloud. Like we use all the credits we can get. <laughs> we, we just need a lot. Are, are you uh, picky on platform? Are you picky? As long as it's reliable. So okay. Azure is where a lot of our stuff is hosted. DigitalOcean is where some of us hosted. We, we have to be very mindful about what services we, we locate where, like how critical yeah, they are. So far... Azure, in my experience, has been incredibly reliable. And AWS is really reliable, too. Um, but we decided to like locate most of our database and our servers in Sounds Azure because they gave the most generous credits, candidly. They give, they give every nonprofit like $3,500, $4,000 a year in credits. And that, that's a big, big head start. And mm -hmm. so we, we locate everything in the same data center. It reduces latency. Um, so if we had like a significant offer... Of credits, we might be able to relocate the entire stack for like learn over to a different place. But we'd want to, we wouldn't want to do it piecemeal just because of the introduction of latency and yeah. additional security risks and stuff like that. But either way, with the, the new stack, you've definitely been able to shrink said budget. So, yeah. And this is just day one. Like, this is the very beginning of the process. Is there a stack process. though? I mean, isn't that the point of Jamstack is you do it when you well, build was, and then, uh, well, you said most of your stack well, is, we here. still have like servers that like, are these like, like things API. that are like APIs? Yeah. 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 So whenever That's you complete it, whenever you complete a, jam. a lesson, for example, it writes back and if it can't establish connection with server, it just stores in like local memory or uh, right. I think local storage is what we use. And then when it reestablishes connection, then it pushes. So we're building on all that kind of, uh, you know, redundancy and, and turgidness. Right. Very cool. So any drawbacks on the Jamstack so far? Like things that you're like, oh, we didn't see this we, one coming. Cache invalidation 
is always challenging. Like you, you push a bunch of changes and, and they're cached on Cloudflare or Netlify CDN or something. And you just have to wait till it propagates or hey, try refreshing. And we're working on figuring out a way to do that. So we don't have to tell people try doing a hard refresh, <laughs> you know, That's every yeah. web developer's least favorite phrase yeah. is try refreshing. Cause we hate saying that. It's like, a, it's, it's like, like it may turn it off and on again. Right. It's kind of like the, yeah, I kind of failed at the cache invalidation part. Hard yeah. refresh. And you have to go yeah. teach people how to hard refresh versus a regular refresh. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. I've done that. <laughs> so that's, that's been the biggest drawback, but I mean, on a whole, and then like, like I think Netlify was like under like a DDoS attack the other day. And like we, we had some, some uh, like uptime issues with that. But again, it's like they're doing the best they can. They're a pretty small organization compared to like the AWSs of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we just want to be there to support them. And uh, we're just grateful that like, you know, Netlify, Discourse, a whole lot of other organizations have given us in-kind uh, sponsorship. In a sense, mm-hmm. they're not giving us money, but they are giving services. us like servers yeah. and services. That makes a big difference. Yeah. So the third pillar of what you're up to, we've talked about the learning platform, the forums we touched on at the very beginning of the yeah. conversation. We haven't talked much about the publication. Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of FreeCodeCamp is we have freecodecamp.org slash news, and we have hundreds of authors who are publishing articles there every week. Not not like active, we don't get hundreds of articles every week. We're going for quality over quantity. It's not an open publishing platform where you can just like sign in and start publishing. With uh, with the publication, you have to apply, and we're really selective. I think like we had five percent selectivity. So most people they'll submit a whole bunch of writing samples. We'll force them to read our style guide and all that stuff. Make them jump through all the hoops. If they want it badly enough, then we'll give them a uh, conditional account, like a contributor account, and then they can write drafts, and we can look at those. And if the, the moment we see one of the drafts that we're like, yeah, this is ready to go. This is solid. We can do a little bit of editing, publish it, and then we give them full access to our Google Analytics so they can see exactly who's reading their articles. Mm-hmm. Like basically everything Google Analytics tracks, and we've got a bunch of additional custom filters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Make it really simple for them. Uh, that's the only tracking we use, by the way. Uh, we use Google Analytics because at this point, it's the only like server side analytics are great, but you just don't have enough information for the authors to be able to understand their readership. This uh, this process of collaboration or lack thereof, if there isn't any, on the edit process, how do you handle that? Do you have sort of baked in processes where you're giving them feedback and suggesting edits, or do you make the edits and say this is how it is? How does that yeah. how's that relationship? Yeah, we make the edits for them, uh, and then we tell them what edits we made. Generally, uh, if usually the edits are are Seemingly unimportant, but actually really important. Like the headline is by far right. the most important thing to the point that I'm practically at the point where I was just like, I'm just going to write the headlines for you because yeah. like that's all 90% of people see, especially yeah, in the yeah, age right. of like Apple News and Reddit and all these aggregators. People just scro- scroll through headlines and that's their news. Like very few people actually click through. Do you so, actually say anything like a headline is a, su- a suggestion from them and it is in your hands at the end? Like yeah, what they write may actually become the headline, but it's actually just a suggestion. Yeah, and yeah it's we're more like, we're clear that like essentially they're they're writing and to save a whole bunch of back and forth and a bunch of communication overhead that slows things down, we just apply the edits ourselves. Yeah, um, and people understand that they appreciate it because they understand that we care a lot about quality and we want to get their article read by as many people as possible. The way we do that, of course, is after they they publish it, uh, we publicize it through our Twitter 
account, which I don't know how many followers it has. Is a lot. Is it like it has a high level of engagement? Let's let's say that. Like generally, when we tweet something, it gets retweeted like ten to sometimes a hundred times. And uh, we also um, have a huge LinkedIn alumni network, and we get like two million impressions a month just off LinkedIn posting things on LinkedIn. So, and then of course I have my email blast that I send out and I've got like a mailing list of like 2.5 million people. So a lot of people click through and read those articles that I choose for the weekly email blast. So it's worth it. We're giving them a megaphone to reach a whole lot of people and to really raise their profile in the developer community. And they take that opportunity seriously. How often do you think about internal tooling? I'm talking about the back office apps, the tool the customer service team uses to access your databases, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, and maybe even the tool that your data science team had together so they can provide custom ad spend insights. Literally every line of business relies upon internal tooling, but if I'm being honest, I don't know many engineers out there who enjoy building internal tools, let alone getting them excited about maintaining or even supporting them. And this is where Retool comes in. Companies like DoorDash, Brex, Plaid, and even Amazon, they use Retool to build internal tooling super fast. The idea is that almost all internal tools look the same. They're made of tables, dropdowns, buttons, text inputs, and Retool gives you a point, click, drag and drop interface that makes it super simple to build these types of interfaces in hours, not days. Retool connects to any database or API, for example, to pull data from Postgres, just write a SQL query and drag and drop a table onto the canvas. And if you want to search across those fields, add a search input bar and update your query, save it, share it. It's too easy. Retool is built by engineers explicitly for engineers. And for those concerned about data security, Retool can even be set up on premise in about 15 minutes using Docker, Kubernetes, or Heroku. Learn more and try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. And by our friends at Square, we're helping them to announce their new developer YouTube channel. Head to youtube.com slash square dev to learn more and subscribe. Here's a preview of their first episode of the Sandbox Show, where Shannon Skipper and Richard Moot deep dive into the concept of item potency. Welcome to the pilot episode of The Sandbox Show, a show well, where we'll- a YouTube show. Where we'll deep dive into subjects that developers find interesting. Don't worry, there will be plenty of live coding. I'm Shannon, and this is Richard, and we're gonna cover a broad range of topics as the show evolves, but for today, what are we gonna be covering? On this first episode, we're gonna be covering item potency. We had talked to people in our community, and the thing that people seem to be really confused by is this concept of item potency, and how does it relate to interacting with an API? Right. And so I didn't do some Googling on this beforehand, but I know that you did. I did. So the definition of item potency comes from item and potent. So item being same and potent power or potency. So it's the same potency. All right, check out this full length show and more on their YouTube channel at youtube.com slash square dev or search for square developer. Again, youtube.com slash square dev.
kind of pieces are you looking for? Because I know I remember in your post you mentioned like journalistic kind of stuff eventually, or I don't know. Eventually, us. we'd like to have explanatory journalism where we take like net neutrality. For example, I wrote uh, maybe like 10,000 words about net neutrality and it put everything in context right during the peak of like people asking about net neutrality and curious about it. And it was, it put it in a historic context with all the other mediums mm -hmm. that preceded it, the other media that preceded it, like radio, cable, stuff like that. And uh, so that would be kind of like the archetypal, like if I was gonna lead by example, I'd say we should be writing in-depth articles like this. Um, and there are plenty of other publications that write really like New York times, uh, the wall street journal. A lot of them will just have really in-depth articles that put things in a historical context. It's not just like this happened and this happened and this happened. It's like this happened and here's why that's significant from a historical perspective, or here's what that means. So explanatory technology journalism, that's kind of our aspiring goal. One of our goals is to get people to actually come to freecocamp.org every day and have something new and exciting that they can yeah. learn. Right now, people just blow through the curriculum and they get a job and they're like, awesome. Yeah. Oh, free Code Camp, I used that back in 2017. Mm -hmm. I hear that all the time. And yeah. I'm like, oh, we're still doing a lot of exciting we're still, stuff. We're still here. I was going <laughs> to ask you about that because it's one thing to, you know, if your mission is to educate as a primary mission and you mentioned the three pillars, it's going to be very difficult to keep a captive audience because of what you just said. So it's very easy for people to be transient given that their goals and their means have been covered and they're gone. Yeah. And there's, there's always more stuff to learn, right? right? Like I learned a lot about quantum computing in the past few weeks. I learned a lot about, uh, you know, micron length semiconductor manufacturing and stuff like that, right? Um, there's always new stuff that's coming out. I mean, technology by definition is new, so there's always new stuff. And just being able to explain how, you know, you orchestrate with Kubernetes or how a Docker container works. <laughs> What's the difference between a Docker image and a, you know, a Docker container, right? Or a Docker instance. I, I can't even remember all the different terms associated mm. with Docker. You need an article. Do you have, um, you mentioned a free code camp mission, but do you, it seems like the roles of these pillars are distinct. So do they have their own agenda that feeds into a sort of main or corporate agenda? Yeah, like why these three? Yeah. Yeah. So we are strong believers in content. I think that uh, one of the biggest tragedies is that so much of the rewards of the web have been accrued by platforms that are basically just aggregating other people's content. If you look at like Facebook and, right. Right, and all these companies, uh, they're benefiting from providing the basic infrastructure. You could argue that, you know, Medium fits that boat, Quora. Um, they just create the software. Everybody else comes and adds the content. And People right. don't care about the infrastructure that much. Right. They the really are there the for the value. content, right? Yeah. It's it'd be like you saying like Netflix should accrue one hundred percent of the value because they created such a great streaming platform, and that like the Hollywood movie companies shouldn't get anything because hey, they just created the content. Content's right. free, right? Or right. cheap, <laughs> but content is it. Content is not a commodity. Really good content. Content is incredibly valuable. And if you look like there's the information, for example, it's like this news publication that charges like hundreds of dollars a year to get a subscription. The Economist historically has always charged like $150, $200 a year right. for a subscription. And I think we're going to see more and more of these publications that are like, this is really high quality, so we're not going to give it away for free. At the same time, there are publications that do give it away for free, yeah. like Pro, ProPublica and uh, you know The Guardian and places like that. And that's because they're fully donor-supported. They can do that. And Freeco Camp, of course, being fully donor-supported, 
by, you know, small individual donors. We're a grassroots organization. We can do that. We can make everything free and we can provide tons of content from our community and from ourselves, like, like paid staffers like me who are writing articles and things like that. Yeah. So let's talk about donations real quick and then we'll switch gears because I do want to talk about meetup. You mentioned platforms. There's yeah. So five bucks a month. Let's just say I go and sign up for recurring. I'm in. I like your mission. I got the cash. I'm going to give you five bucks a month. Where does that money go? Yeah. Great question. So first, we've got seven people. <laughs> uh, okay. First, let me talk big numbers so so everybody understands. Free Code Camp's 2019 budget was $373,000. That may sound like a lot of money, but I know developers in Silicon Valley who personally make more money than that a year. Sure. That is maybe payroll for like three or four people, right? Um, and, and we're figuring out a way to like stretch it across seven people. And we're also paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year in servers. So the answer is like 100% of that gets consumed by... The, by what is traditionally called programs when you analyze a nonprofit. There's, you know, okay. there's fundraising, there's administration, and there's programs. And we don't really have don't administration. Do we don't do fundraising. <laughs> we just, that we have Quincy Larson saying, please donate to our nonprofit, please, sir. Mm. You know? <laughs> right. We don't have a PR firm. We don't have a marketing department. Uh, you could argue that we could do better and we could raise more yeah, money, but ask, that like, introduced a lot of complexity to the organization. And right now, everybody who works at Free Code Camp came up through Free Code Camp. Right. We never interviewed anybody. Yeah, I get it. And I would say, like, I know a lot of nonprofits that do the fundraising side. Yeah. And, of course, it's, a, it's it's akin to, like, a bootstrapped company getting VC funding. I mean, there's, like, yeah. some analogs there, but it's different. But you could at least, I mean, but the small, the hardest way is the individual recurring donations versus having a person on staff. Maybe it's you or maybe it's somebody who's really good at going around to the big donors. Yeah. I'm to the foundation. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason why. Just well, that, part of it is... Uh, my point it, is you could get like a, a $1 million grant. Maybe, yeah. But, but we'd be beholden to those organizations and also like that would kind of spoil us. That's why By I said going out some... and fighting in the field to like earn people's donations, regular people, people who are just working day jobs, have kids yeah. feed and paying mortgages, but they're like, hey, yeah, I can spare five bucks for free co-camp a month. Or yeah, it's the end of the year and I can just give them a thousand bucks or 10,000 bucks. What about those companies though that are reaping the benefits of your work. That's fine. It's like a, you know, a positive externality for them, right? <laughs> it's consumer surplus for them. But there's uncaptured opportunity yeah. there. I mean, you could argue the same thing with Wikipedia. I mean, how much value do you think Wikipedia has bestowed upon the world by making it to where I can get good factual information within seconds from a relatively objective arbiter of truth? Yeah, there's a whole lot of value that is Real not captured, but that's that's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, but then they also have to put Jimmy Whale's face on Wikipedia oh for gosh, like yeah. one month every year and bug the dog do out of their users when they could just do these other things such as yeah. some tasteful ads. You know, I know you've... No, no, I, I'm I just have no problem out. with advertising. Right. I think it's a great model, especially for podcasts. But but also, you know, like if you if you don't have the invasive ad networks and stuff, I think I think yeah. ads can Ethical be great. advertising could be a... a Ethical thing. I know you've decided to go pretty much ad-free like across yeah. the board. I think that's an admirable decision. That being said, we're back. I cut you off on yeah. the donations thing. Like you, pretty much that whole five bucks is going right towards programs. Yes, and uh, there's no fluff. There's no like. There's nothing else. It's all right there. We're for now. extremely lean. <laughs> <laughs> we're living lean. Uh, I mean, we we did we have in depth discussions about whether to like pay for like a twenty dollar a month service because it's like oh really yeah yeah. I mean things are 
we just want to operate really efficiently. Like yeah. a lot of my heroes, like, you know, Sam Walton, for example, kind of Walmart on this notion of thrift. And you can argue that like Walmart has um, not been the best employer, <laughs> the best uh, patron of, of different communities that it's been in. But you, it's hard to argue that it hasn't been good for the end consumer because they've managed to drive down the prices of so many things absolutely, and save yeah. people an incredible amount of money, like especially families. These are corporations that could probably make a lot more money, uh, but they're choosing to kind of be broader and more resilient to changes in the economy and things like that. Um, yeah, it's a trade-off. Yeah, it's a, it's a trade-off. But yeah. with FreeCoCamp, we're never going to capture all the value. We don't even, we're, if we can capture, like just to give you an idea, less than 0.1%. I'm sorry, it's it's about 0.5% of our monthly active users donate. donate. Yeah. So it's it's just a fraction. If if I can get a little bit better at my up. pitching. Right. <laughs> well, you're going to my next question. And so let's talk about scale. How do you, what are the conversations you have with yourself yeah. or anyone else on the team about like, okay, if when well, you said your budget was 375000 a year or yeah. 378000 Last, Last year. Right. Last, this year. For this year. This year. This right. year. 373. Sorry. 373. So... When you talk about growth of revenue or income dollars, however you describe it in yeah. nonprofit senses, what are the ways in which you made that number grow? Yeah, so we just get more people using free code camp. It's as simple as that. The more people that use free code camp, a certain percentage of them will go out and get great right, jobs okay. and turn around and donate. Like sometimes we hit, you know, like a windfall. Like I was saying earlier, uh, we had somebody who donated ten thousand dollars earlier yeah. this month. Sean Wong, Sean Wang, um, he's a uh, he went through free code camp. He works at Netlify, um, and he had money at the end of the year, and he wanted to donate it to a high impact charity. Free code camp just to put our efficiency, our capital efficiency, in perspective. We have delivered 1.1 billion minutes of instruction this year. That's the equivalent of 2,000 years of learning in one year. We've done that for 373 thousand dollars. That's the equivalent of 50 hours. Of instruction for every dollar spent. Now you're putting it in terms I like to hear. Mm. So if you go to that like makes my five bucks feel a lot bigger. Yeah. yeah. So your five bucks each month is essentially paying for an entire classroom of people to learn. One thing that uh, is important to note also is that these people are able to do it for free, and the scale that we're operating at, you know, it's it's not only self-paced and free and fully interactive. Uh, it's just incredibly cheap. Like. To put that 50 hours per dollar in perspective, in the United States, the average cost of having a child in a public school is $10 per hour per child. So Free Code Camp is wow. several orders of magnitude more efficient yeah. than like, and granted, they're trying to accomplish totally different things. We right. don't have classrooms. Yeah. We don't have uh, a teacher with a student-teacher ratio of like 17 to 1 or whatever. We just do instructional design and people work through it at their own pace. But it's because of those concerted decisions that we're able to be dramatically more right. efficient. These are all conscious decisions we've made because our ultimate goal is scale. Our ultimate goal is helping as many people as possible for as little money as absolutely necessary. I like the fact that you're focused on those two metrics. You grow the number of free code camp, you know, I, I guess, interested people, users, however you want to describe it. And then that obviously impacts the ratio of donors and you can sort of like grow that one to grow this one, or you can grow this one too. I mean like meaning 
you know, if you grew the amount uh, from 5%. 0.5%. Of, is, 0. 5. That what you is that? Yeah. Okay. Half 5%. a percent. Jeez, if you, if you double that, to, if you double it to 1%, right. I mean, so you can sort of focus on those two metrics, either grow yeah. the total captive audience right. or grow Conversion. the, you know, the, the ratio of yeah. donors. I like the simplicity of focusing on two things rather than so many other things yeah. to grow, to scale. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's why I'm reluctant to bring in like, you know, a fundraising expert or, uh, right. you know, to try to court, like personally fly around and, and meet with the CEOs of all these different uh, Because if you can companies. get by without it, it's obviously better yeah. than not have to do that. And it seems like you're on that path. You have these two numbers. Uh, the, the higher leverage one is honestly the percentage. Yeah. But uh, you seem to be pretty good at growing the top end funnel at this point. Yeah. You know, all these people using it. You've also amazing. been very patient. Based on four years ago, we talked to you. And you're also, and I don't want to use this word too loosely, but you're not greedy, right? Like there are some people that just, and maybe it's, I don't know really how you describe greed where it's not um, egregious or so, like where it's. Overly greedy. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah, well, the right level greed, yeah, of greed. Right. You know, you can have Ambition. capitalistic ambitions and not be greedy. You know, you seem to have a patience that is uncanny. Well, I for that. I where it's not not everybody has the kind of patience you have. Yeah, well, I I managed you know for profit companies before I started Free Code Camp, like as a school director essentially. Like it was a private mm-hmm. uh, intensive English program, and you know I had to make sure that we had like a, a good EBITDA and um, you know all those metrics that matter. So, and I I have kind of a traditional business background in addition to my education background, uh, so I can understand the physics of business, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that's really helpful because that gives me some perspective. And it's kind of like if you're a jazz musician, if you don't know how to play, you can just do chromatic scale, play whatever. It doesn't sound good. But if you do know how to play, you know exactly how to break the rules and how to bend the rules to make it sound really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like to some extent the fact that I'm older. <laughs> I'm you know I'm going to turn forty next year. Uh, that gives me a huge edge because I've got the like the life experience. I I'd run a lot of organizations before free code camp so i knew like the people part of it and the budgeting mm-hmm. part of it so I, I guess in some respects one of the reasons i'm more patient is i'm more confident in the state of the world and how things work and fit together mm-hmm. yeah. and also you know i had my wife who has the patience of job and she had a job with benefits and and we had health insurance for our kid and for ourselves yeah and so i didn't need to you know run out and buy that Ferrari or whatever it yeah. is that, you know, startup people do when they, when they exit, like free code camp will hopefully go on forever. And hope, hopefully at least for the rest of my life, which I'm hoping to live to be, you know, 90, a hundred, like, uh, hopefully I can continue to be involved in, yeah. in leading or helping somebody else lead the organization for the rest of my life. So everything is long-term. This is not a problem that's going to magically solve itself. It, you look at how long it's taken to get people to, you know, to even get literacy to the rate it is yeah. after 400 years, right? <laughs> um, this is going to be an ongoing challenge to teach people about technology. We probably have people coming into developer land at a faster rate than the birth rate at this point. Just a, a thought a thought, a thought, exercise. Think That's about true. which one's actually yeah. happening faster. So I think we're maybe converting more developers than we're, we're birthing them at this point. So huge, massive, forward-looking opportunity as well and impact so let's do a hard cut to uh can i ask one question before we do the hard cut 
Yes. Have uh, have you gotten offers or people, venture capital, anybody that, that's come to you and said, Quincy, I will buy what you got. I will give you know whatever sure. it might be. Have you yeah. gotten some? Like yeah. how often do you get I'm these? I'm not going to say the names, but we we've, we've had some big companies that like have approached us, um, for like acquire. I guess yeah. I don't know how it would work. I mean, this is before we got the taxi sim status, um, but once we got that, people just left us alone because it. You can, in theory, unwind an NGO. Like if somebody wanted to acquire the Red Cross, it'd be like this bureaucratic, you know, nightmare. I really? mean, you spend so much time. I'm sure, but it, it is possible, possible to convert. Yeah, but that's never going to happen here. Uh, and I'm grateful that you know the, those organizations saw value in Free Co Camp, but that's not where we're yeah. going. Like we don't want to be, you know, Free Co Camp by Acme Corporation, <laughs> yeah, or something like that, right? Right. I just would imagine the offers are. A plentiful, and the temptation is is uh, is very. I mean, very large. it's not really for me. Uh, or could be. I mean, for some, depends. Yeah, I, I'm just a simple dude. <laughs> like I like hanging out with my kids. <laughs> I like reading books and and uh, going for runs. You know, I mean, I don't know because I'm in this very fortunate position yeah. where I live in a really advanced country with rule of law, yeah. order, like. You get more money, it, it's almost like an insurance policy, right? Like, if I get cancer, I'll be able to pay for all my chemotherapy and my radiotherapy uh, or any surgeries necessary, right? Uh, if my kids get cancer, I'll be able to pay for that. So money at some point, like, just becomes a score, a number that, uh, in theory, you can dip into if you really need to. I don't think that that really applies to me. I'd much rather just be a normal person and, and have a normal kind of middle class middle American life yeah. than be cruising around in a Ferrari in San Francisco or something. Yeah. Yeah. Hard left. Go ahead. Okay. Hard left turn. So closing in closing, we're going to talk about this topic because you're not busy enough with free code camp. You decide, you know what we want to do? We want to disrupt. We want to disrupt meetup with an open source event planning platform for not just for developers, but for everybody to be able to just set up their own instance with a Docker container. Tell us about, yeah, chapter and why you're doing this and uh how it relates to at least relates to the current you know, to the recent changes in medium i'm not sure if it's actually inspired by that if you're already working on it and you're like oh this is opportunistic tell us the story of chapter real quick yeah so meetup was acquired by WeWork a couple years ago WeWork, as we all know was not worth as much as they said it was pretty disastrous and, uh, uh, yeah. Reversal, reverse IPO. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's one for the history books. But anyway, we work, of course. Uh, and as of October, when I made this announcement, uh, it was a few hours after Meetup had announced that they were enacting this new policy that they were going to charge everybody a $2 RSVP fee whenever they RSVP'd for an event. Now, FreeCodeCamp, grudgingly, has 40 ish. Meetups on Meetup. Most of our study groups are organized on Facebook because it's free, but some meetups will pay the $20 a month to have a, a Meetup page, which I think is ridiculous that it costs that much money, but it does. And people are willing to pay for it. So we quickly did some back of the envelope calculations. And based on the number of events we had, it would have cost us like $20,000 extra every year. Not just to us, but to the entire community in aggregate. If right. they were all paying, yeah, and that two bucks is essentially yours to potentially get as a donation. So it just yeah, you know, or, or it's just money in their pocket that they yeah. shouldn't have to spend to 
RSVP and to it's a free not event. for the organizer. It's yeah. for the people who It's for Meetup. Right. It's for the platform, the infrastructure that hasn't changed. The only notable thing that Meetup has done in the past 10 years was get acquired by WeWork. They have been the exact standing still website. Yeah. in terms of product, in my humble opinion. And I say this as somebody who's been using Meetup for the yeah, last 10 years. I could say that as well because there's like, I recently as part of this was like, I thought I closed my account. I double checked on it. I didn't. I was like, I'm closing it. Because I thought I did before, I think, when, when they were acquired by WeWork. It was just like... I never knew they got acquired. I just... This was the first I had heard. I mean, I'd just been a yeah. a grudging meetup user as well. Just more from the... They'd done some other stuff, too. I, I can't recall what, but it was just like, you know what? I, You know, if I'm... if It wasn't like, oh, I'm canceling, you know, uh, meetup from my life. It was more like, I don't use the platform anymore. I don't find value in it. And I'm like, wow, if I if you leave a profile somewhere, at least your data is still there. So there's still sure. this um, opportunity for them to use you when you've since gone away. So my thought was like, I'm going to pull my account and not do that anymore. Well, what I love about the open source community is like we don't have to put up with that stuff if we don't want to. That being said, somebody has to step up and like throw some code on the table or a spec on the table. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things mm-hmm. we talked with uh, Siege Bot about what they're doing with the federated, you know, replacement for the package management. Uh, what's it called? I can't remember the name of it. All Entro- of a sudden. Entropic? Yeah, Entropic. Entropic, yeah. You know, and just the fact that it's like, well, we could all sit around and complain. And hey, as people who talk into microphones a lot, some some of that we do is just the easiest like, thing for us to do is to complain. Yeah, we complain quite a bit, but in the open source world, it's like, hey, we can actually solve some of these problems. And that's why I was just yeah. uh, impressed by the announcement and your guys is at least beginnings of an effort to say, you know what, mm-hmm. Meetup has value. These th- this is a thing that needs to exist, but it's not like it's irreplicable or yeah. replaceable. So it's What's not that complicated. So yeah. We quickly made an announcement. Like I thought about it really hard. I just decided, yes, this is important enough. This is going to make a big enough difference for just us that it's worth having self-hosted chapter management tool. Uh, I mean, that's what it is. It's for multi-chapter organizations. So we're not trying to boil the ocean and just say we're all events everywhere, just like Meetup is, right? We're just focused on like you know the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club of America or Rotary Club. Lions Club, some of these other organizations that have lots of chapters, they can just have their own server. They can have full control of the data, and people can go there and set up events, and and they can have chapter organizers, and uh, then they can have some discovery within their own organization, Mm -hmm. and they can just have a little subdomain or subdirectory that's like, you know, ymca.com slash chapter or womenwhocode.org slash chapter or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? Um, So as far as how it's coming along, I tweeted out this kind of somewhat angry tweet by Quincy Larson, uh, relatively emotionless tweet standards. Um, and uh, a lot of people were like, yeah, that's messed up. You know, like it was like a, I think it was a tweet of the screenshot of like the meetup, Their you know, or cheerful whatever, announcement. Yeah. Oh, great news. No everyone. worries, everybody. You're right. Yeah. This is actually going to slightly reduce your cost as an organizer and pass like massive costs onto the community. But anyway, a lot of people retweeted and I had a little link to a discord room, which uh, Discord is not open source, of course, but it is pretty convenient for just organizing an impromptu thing. I've sure. used it for hackathons and stuff. Um, so everybody jumped in there, and we got like a thousand people jump in. Most of them just, of course, promptly left and forgot about it, but some of them stayed. And we started brainstorming, like, what kind of tools are we going to use? What What's the user story? You know, what are they going to look like? Who are the roles? And we quickly got a lot of stuff ironed out, like got the schema, got... Uh, um, like an API documentation up, got an API up, 
Um, so now we're just building a lot of the additional functionality we need for our MVP. But soon it'll be out. And of course, it won't be amazing right off the bat, but eventually it'll be great. <laughs> I love this. Of course, it won't be there's amazing. A, there's a theme. But eventually this. it'll be great. That's right. I like that. Theme for the show, eventual greatness. <laughs> so how do people get involved? I mean, typical GitHub flow, like hop yeah. on the find chapter in the show notes and like get involved because this is a thing that uh, we could all could use. And if you could use it and you want to have, seems like to me, pretty easy entry, low hanging, like collaborator fruit. Like, hey, here's a pretty open project that's still getting itself figured out. That's the best time to get involved because like huge impact, like you can be, you can be a big contributor early mm -hmm. on. Uh, check out chapter from the Free Code Camp crew. Yeah. Is it, would you say it's a meetup alternative though? Well, for our purposes, yeah. as, a, as an NGO that has lots of chapters around the world, absolutely. Like yeah. we're not going to use meetup anymore. So you're solving your own problem yeah. first and hopefully this, the problem you have is, is multiplied by many others. Yeah, well, well I'm confident is. it is. Yeah, well, sure it is. is. But even if only we used it internally, it'd still be it's just fine. Twenty thousand dollars in savings, and right. also the pride of us being able to go in and tweak things and not having all yeah. of our user data just be like owned by WeWork <laughs> and their desperate, you know, cash squeezing <laughs> efforts. Yeah. So, what about a more traditional meetups? So, like we have the Nebraska JavaScript yeah. meetup. It's just a very typical JavaScript meetup. Is chapter? Mm -hmm. It's not multi-chapter. It's just like, well, we do a meetup every, and you can you can RSVP. run like a. You could run your own instance, it's just 20 bucks for whatever, five bucks to get it, like a tiny little server that'll run it. Mm. We're, we're trying to like make it as compact as possible. Like instead of using uh, Elasticsearch, for example, we're just going to use Postgres queries. Um, so little tweaks like that that just reduce the number of services we have to have running in a, in a Docker container. Yeah. Has the idea of federated ever yeah. made it into the, into and how did that go? What were the so, thoughts around that share? I mean, not necessarily from a technological perspective, but just like a way that you can opt into being part of a shared discovery network. Right, exactly. Right. Because the main benefit of Meetup yeah, exactly. is really discovery. Is, yeah, exactly. Right. That's the, that's the only yeah. benefit. I mean, if you, if you have your own organization, you already have a mailing list of tons of people, you are, people know your website and they're visiting it already, then you don't need to worry as much about discovery, but it's it's still a nice thing to have. Well, you still go there and check your interests, too. Yeah. So if a new group comes up near you geographically, let's say my interests are JavaScript and Ruby, well, anytime th anything touches those two areas, then I'm going to get notified. Yeah. So it you wouldn't want to just prop up your tent without an audience and no opportunity for discovery. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't. Um, so I was curious about Federated. I mean, this could eventually come to uh, uh, displace Meetup in a lot of respects, but that's not our goal at this point. Yeah. Even though initially I was like so angry at Meetup, I was yeah. like, yeah, let's let's just create a Meetup killer. But I, that's not how I think. Like when I'm thinking clear-headedly and I don't see red, um, I think I think practically. What can we do for our organization? What right. can we do for our community? And this is the right scope, right scale tool uh, right. That, that's going to work for them. Well, it's been five years. Four since we last talked, five since the inception. This is your fifth year anniversary. Uh, similar question in the companion podcast you asked us, which was, hey, what's the next five years like for you? What What's the future hold for you? Are you lack of visionary like I am currently, or are you visionary and you've got lots of ambition? I have an incredible amount of things I'd like to do. A lot of it comes down to how much we have in our budget because we don't want to overextend ourselves. We're a tiny organization. We want to make sure everything we do, we do properly and that we're not spreading ourselves too thin. So uh, if we can continue to grow our budget, we'd like to do a lot more explanatory journalism 
and uh, explain a lot more about technology and put tech news in context uh, through really in-depth primers. Uh, we'd like to create a lot more really good first-party courses, and we'd like to create a lot more interactive curricula. We'd love to be able to figure out a way that we could pay for servers so that we could actually have Linux focus challenges, uh, Git focus challenges, all these things that require like file file right. systems essentially. Right. Like you can only do so much in the browser. Just um, you know, for example, we're able to do Python because Mozilla just released a giant library that's a significant update from like Brython or some of these other um, browser-based Python tools. Uh, but we'd really like to be able to actually have full development environments like on a server that is showing up on FreeCodeCamp that you yourself have your own little mini, you know, compartment on the server. Mm-hmm. Costs a lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah. If, we, if we're able to increase the budget, we're going to just keep doing what we do with those three pillars. We're going to keep growing the number of people on the forum and by extension in IRL events. And uh, we're also going to just keep creating articles and videos, and we're going to keep expanding the curriculum. Gosh, we haven't even talked about that side of the publication, your YouTube channel. I mean, we're on there right now, right? <laughs> theoretically. So, so subscribe. We do have a YouTube channel. There click the go. bell for notifications. Click, exactly. Every time you click the like and subscribe. Yeah. Click the bell. That's right. YouTubers, they always. <laughs> it's like subscribe and the bell. Right. Why did Why did YouTube do that? They want you to have to subscribe twice. I've never hit the bell in my well, life. It, you know, actually, it's kind of like a double opt-in. You subscribe because you're interested. What's the bell give you? It, like makes notifications. I don't care that much that you no, post I don't a video. Either. Like I'll come watch it on my own terms. Thank yeah. you very yeah. much. No one's that important. Well, that's where the double opt-in is. I mean, so, I get it from the from the creator side. Like, yeah. I would love to have the bell for my channel, but I don't want to have your bell for my feed. <laughs> Keep your bell, all <laughs> right? right? Keep your bell. Ah. Well, Quincy, man, it's, yeah. it's been an amazing. What a journey. It's been uh, it's been fun watching you over these last five years. Uh, the numbers speak for themselves. I think the fact that you're you can educate at such a efficient rate makes it total sense for people who are who have uh, you know the funds and have benefited from free code camp or know people who have you know that five bucks seems like it makes a lot of sense so you know one more time to pitch to our listeners if if you appreciate the work they're doing and you want to help educate the next generation of coders out there whether they're young, whether they're young or old, or what part of the world they're in, yeah, uh, no better way than to do a recurring donation to Free Code Camp. And when he says see. better, no better. There's no more efficient way. Right, and the leverage is amazing. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, thanks for sitting down with us. We really appreciate you and all the work you're doing. Thanks again for having me back. It's been a privilege talking to you, gentlemen. Thanks, Quincy. Same here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Changelog. Hey, guess what? We have discussions on every single episode now. So head to changelog.com to discuss this episode. And if you want to help us grow this show, reach more listeners, and influence more developers, do us a favor and give us a rating or review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you use Overcast, give us a star. If you tweet, tweet a link. If you make lists of your favorite podcasts, include us in it. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, our monitoring service, and Linode, our cloud server of choice. 
This episode is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo, and our music is done by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com master, or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Thank you for tuning in this week. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.